We are in a series, church-wide, that we are calling Your Biblical Literacy, and uh, it's two things. Number one, it is a through-the-year uh, Bible reading plan where you are part of our community at Calvary Slow, reading from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. So if I know, if I remember correctly from what the what I read this morning, or actually what I noted this morning, I think if you are currently up to date, you should be like around Leviticus, what? 20? Does anybody remember? Leviticus 18. I know the YouVersion app and the uh, Bible, Read Bible app or whatever are a little bit different. So somewhere around there. Let's just say Leviticus 18 somewhere around there. And uh, Leviticus is not an easy book. So those of you guys that are reading it and you're having a really hard time with it, uh, you are in great company because everybody else is having a hard time reading as well. My encouragement, my advice is just keep reading. Keep reading. Pay attention to little details. Um, I should say, don't, don't pay too much attention to little details. Pay attention to the bigger themes. That's what I wanted to say. Because you can get bogged down, I think, a lot in all these little details. Leviticus is kind of a bloody, very disconnected from modern 2018 world in which we live in. Um, and pay attention to themes. Note certain ideas. Uh, I was talking with my daughter this morning. She goes, Dad, it's so hard to read. But there's this constant repeated theme of like, and they were unclean, and they were unclean. I'm like, yes, that's a theme. When God repeats things over and over and over again, pick that up and think about that. Uh, think of yourself as in a car, maybe in the backseat of a vehicle, and you're being driven along by this author. And the author is repeatedly showing you things that are happening along this scenario. Pay attention to those themes. Think about them. Reflect upon them. Because within that, there's a, there's a message that God is trying to convey and communicate. So keep going on Leviticus. Leviticus, it is, like I said, number one, your biblical literacy is through the Bible, through the year, uh, through the Bible, reading the Bible in a year. Secondly, it is doing so in the context of community. We have what we, small groups, we call community groups. So if you are not currently in a small community group, get involved. There's all sorts of them on our own website, calvaryslow.com forward slash community. Uh, all the information is right there, and uh, you can check that out. And uh, we just finished one teaching series, and now we're kind of moving into another teaching series. And by the time we're done with this, so we got about another eight weeks uh, of going through this series. And then when we're done with this, we're going to get into just some more expositional teaching like what we typically do on a Sunday morning. So it's rare for us to kind of do themes like this or series like this, but there's a reason why we're doing this. is because, number one, the first series that we had gone through was we wanted to do some, a, a series of teachings on the Bible to help you read Scripture, to understand Scripture, to give you some tools, so to speak. Uh, so we were asking questions like, why the Bible? Why should we even bother reading the Bible? For example, when the answers that we had given to that, because number one, Jesus read the Bible. Jesus loved scriptures. His entire life was uh, bound up in this book that we call the Bible, or a library of books we call the Bible. Secondly, example, answer that we had given to that is because Jesus, you know, this is an easy one, Jesus people, Jesus followers follow Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you're like, I follow Jesus, do you read scripture? The answer to that is nope. I've memorized more, you know, lyrics from you know, movies that I like and pop artists that I like, but I don't know anything about scripture, then I would, I would honestly call, call you to think about the level of your following of Jesus. Jesus' people follow Jesus. Jesus loves scripture. If you are a follower of Jesus and you're like, I have no relationship whatsoever with scripture, then you have to reconsider, you have to think about this. Not trying to make anyone feel guilty or judge or anything like that, just wanting to call attention to the reality that Jesus' people truly follow Jesus. 
And that means that we follow Jesus in terms of how we even wrestle with this really challenging and difficult and distant, in some ways, book we call Scripture. So, for example, that's what we looked at. So the second series that we are starting today, right now, is what we're just simply calling the story of God. And the big idea that we're wanting to kind of paint as a picture of this is that we want to basically fly 30,000 feet above the entire what we would call the narrative arc of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. We will look at the entire Bible. So throughout the duration of this entire series, rather than getting stuck in a lot of the details and the, the, the specific nuances in the text itself, I want to fly above the whole thing. And there's a specific reason for that. Is I want for us to catch the overarching main theme and the narrative of the entire scripture. There is one, believe it or not. This is what makes this book so fascinating. And I keep referring to it as a book, but if you have been around with us for any length of time, you know it's technically not a book. It's a series of books. It's 66 books. It's a library of books, if you want to think of it that way. Each book in this library has a different literary genre. And it's a different way in which it's written. It's a different author. Sometimes over different centuries, and sometimes even over different continents, this book was written, uh, or library books was written. And yet, what's absolutely amazing about this entire library of 66 books is that there's one unified story from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation that's tied together. This is phenomenal. It's an amazing reality. So, what I want to do right now is I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a background story as to why this is so amazing, so exciting. So I'll kind of give you a little my personal journey on this, and then we will jump in, and then we will kind of make some comments, and we'll jump in and begin to look at some concepts. And in some ways, I'll actually share with you what I'm not going to be teaching on this morning in this context, and then we will begin to take a look at some passages in uh, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. That's it. One and two. So the first two scenarios, the first two chapters in the Bible, and then next week we'll get in, we'll kind of start, uh, it'll be bigger chunks of scripture that we'll be covering. Let me pray first, and then I'll tell you my own personal journey in this. So we'll jump in. God, we uh, just thank you, Lord, that you, first and foremost, that you love us. God, that's what, beyond anything else, this incredible library of books tells us. You love us. You created this world, God, to reflect something of your goodness and of your beauty. You delegated it. You handed it over to humanity to rule it, to govern it, to exercise some level of creativity over it. God, you love us. And even in the midst of our own brokenness and our sin, our rebellion, God, you have not cast off this project of creation. But radically, God, what you did is you stepped into this world to remake it, to remake us. So God, I ask you this morning, above me on anything else, that you would open our hearts, open our eyes to see who you are. So we just commit this time in your hands and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, quick question for you guys. Uh, are you guys doing good temperature-wise? Anybody like on the hotter end? Hotter end? I'm a little bit on the hotter end. Is there any way that we can just like turn it down or maybe just turn the heat off if that's possible? Thanks, it's a little bit hotter up here. It could be the lights too, but anyway, so. Um, let's jump in. So let me begin real first just by telling you a little story, kind of a background. So I grew up in a church that, in my opinion, uh, had very, very high honor and recognition of Scripture, loved Scripture. So I, when I got saved, when I met Jesus for the very first time, I have shared this with you guys, someone gave me a Bible, and the very first thing that I did is I just started reading the Bible. I, was, I could not stop. I could not put it down. I was totally uh, incredibly, like, moved by this book. It was, now that being said, it was not easy to read. There were lots of questions that I had. 
Um, but at the end of the day, I loved reading scripture. I tried as much as I can to uh, avail myself of as many tools that I could find to learn about scripture, whether it be, you know, back in the day, they had these things called cassette tapes, right? Some of you are like, what's a cassette tape? You know, you've seen images of them. Just Google it, you'll see. But the point of the matter is, is cassette tapes or teaching material or books. I was just, I, I wanted as much information as I could to learn about this book. And the context where I came from, there's a lot of emphasis upon, you know, focusing on a sentence or even focusing on a word or maybe even on a paragraph or even just a book in the Bible. And all that's great. But one of the things that I did not recognize is that as you can focus a lot of information upon one particular word, it's possible to study and to dig into the understanding of a particular Greek word or Hebrew word, which is the original language in which it came from, but not understand how that word plugs into the entire storyline of the Bible, like how it fits. So it's, it's possible to start focusing on certain ideas and concepts that really have nothing to do with the larger whole. So you can focus on certain key ideas and concepts that might play into it. And this would be kind of an act of focusing all your energy and just being enamored and becoming like a, a theologian about the swamps of Dagobah in the story of uh, you know, Star Wars. You're like, I'm, I'm an expert on Dagobah. Well, well, that's wonderful. But how in the world does Dagobah play into the entire storyline of the entire Star, Star Wars narrative? Like, that's not the main point of the entire, like, if you focus all your energy or just like on a lightsaber, right? Some of you are like, wait, Star Wars? I'm not really sure. But the point of the matter is, um, to focus all this energy on just one idea, you miss the entire thing. And it was probably about 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, somewhere around there, I, I began uh, just broadening my journey of understanding and learning, and I came across this idea that actually Scripture is this one massively designed by God, God-breathed word in which he used human instruments to sculpt this incredible narrative. And there's this theme, this idea, this storyline from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And it keeps coming into play, and it's absolutely breathtaking. So another way to maybe think about it for me, it would be like hiking a mountain, and you can stop and look at a particular rock and observe that and be amazed by certain details of that, which is, again, part of the wonderful journey. And as you keep going on this journey, you get to the very top of the mountaintop, and you look out, you're like, wait a minute, this is amazing. I'm at, I'm at a place, and I never even realized that this view exists, that this mountain that has all these rocks, it has all these like little you know, pathways going up here and brushes and sage and trees and, you know, uh, all these other types of uh, foliage. But on the top of this thing, you begin to realize, wait, this is one mountain in the midst of many different mountains. And look, there's the ocean and there's Catalina and there's all these other things that I never even knew existed before. That's what happened to me when I began to realize Scripture has this massive story. So it radically gave, I mean, I, look, I'm self-admittedly a card-carrying Bible geek to begin with. I get that. And when I began to realize this overarching story of the entire Bible just took my quest for more geekiness to a whole other level. And so I guess in some ways, uh, it's not that I, I want you guys to catch some beauty of this incredible storyline. And so to do that, that's what our next several weeks is going to look like. It's to try to fly above this entire book to understand this overarching narrative, overarching storyline, what's happening here in the story. So today, this, the title of this morning's message is called Creation, or in other words, Kingdom Begins. Something's happening in this initial, what we would call, creation narrative. 
that's setting really the trajectory for the rest of the Bible. So you have to pay very close attention to what's happening, what's playing forth, what's uh, coming un, uh, throughout the rest of the story. Now, that being said, we also have to recognize that there's this uh, slide that I have up here. Um, it's a quote from Tim Mackey. Some of you guys are familiar with him. He's one of the guys that's uh, created a lot of these videos. In fact, we'll watch one in just a moment. I think next slide. Um, it talks about this, that the Bible was actually not written for you, or not written to you, but it's written for you. So in other words, first and foremost, what he's basically trying to address is that this book, first of all, is an ancient document. So he makes two statements, that the Bible is an ancient text, and yet oftentimes we don't treat it as one. Second thing he points out is that any active communication only has meaning within a particular language, historical and cultural context. So the first thing to think about with regard to this idea is that the Bible, what, what, if you have one in your lap or you have one that's a replication of one on an app, um, it is first and foremost this ancient text. Now, we believe it's God-breathed, meaning God had inspired this ancient word. But first and foremost, this text was written to an initial audience. So, for example, when Paul, uh, in the book of 1 Timothy, whatever, Paul wrote that book, not to you in 2018. He wrote to a guy named Timothy. When you read it, it's like you're reading someone else's mail. And God actually invites us to read other people's mail. Because, again, even though the Bible is first and foremost written to someone else other than you, another age, another group of people, another context of people, uh, it also involves you. So the way I think we oftentimes read the Bible is that it was directly written to us, and here's part of the problem. This is part of our problem in reading the Bible, is that we come to the Bible as a modern document, which means we think of it as having answers to our modern questions that we have. So we come to it with these modernized questions, and we approach this ancient text mining it, searching for it, scavenger hunting through this text to try to answer our modern day questions. And it's one of the reasons why sometimes I think people have these crises of faith. Because they come to school, they have, you know, a religion 101, first year, freshman in college, and they begin to realize, like, wait a minute, the Bible was not simply a book that answers every single one of my questions. It was never meant to be. The Bible, in fact, I'll even go one other step further to kind of point out, this may sound a little bit hurtful or offensive, but the, the Bible was, was the, the Bible's not about you. I know that kind of sounds uh, obvious, but when you think about it, there is a tendency for us to read Scripture as if it is it's about me. Where am I in the Scripture? First and foremost, the Bible is about God. It's a story about God. It's a story about who God is, what God is up to in this world. What God has done, what God has done in creation, what God has done in terms of creating human beings. So in other words, I like to think of it this way, that God is the main player on this stage. Our role, your role, my role is just nothing more than a bit character, bit player on the stage. Now, you do matter to this. No, don't misunderstand me. You absolutely matter to the story. But it's not about you. It's about God. And when you begin to get it properly, in the proper context, it actually brings the measure, the, the weightiness of how you enter into the story into a whole new level of significance. Because you matter to God, you are part of the story. So the point that I would make is this. As he goes on, any act of communication has meaning within the particular language and historical cultural context. So I'll give you one other example from a biblical context of this. So Paul will say something like to the women, you know, dress modestly. So when you think of the word modest, what do you think about? You think about, you know, women, for example, women in this context, that's who Paul's talking about, women dressing immodestly. 
you know, wearing clothes that are like a little too short or too much is showing. That's, that's what we would call immodest. So when we think about the word modesty, Paul says dress modestly. We immediately think, well, maybe what Paul is talking about don't have too much body showing. Not at all what Paul's talking about. That's not, uh, the word modest in the original like, context is not about making sure you don't have too much body part showing. It actually has to do with a level of social economic value. So if Paul would say, don't, you know, don't dress immodestly or don't dress in a level that is not uh, dressed modestly, what he's basically saying is don't walk around as if you are super wealthy and that's going to cause other people that, that don't have that level of significance of wealth to kind of feel as if they're secondhand citizens. Now, again, you can read that level of modesty, our definition, the modern-day definition, into the text, and it changes it a little bit. Changes it a little bit. So one of the crucial points that, that I hope to help you, help all of us, it's been helpful for me, to when we approach the Bible, to begin to ask questions like, how did the original audience understand this? What are some of the idioms and nuances and concepts and ideas that play into this? Because if I don't pause at least to ask those questions, and here's what ends up happening, is I presuppose my modern-day lens upon the text, 2018, and I try to go to the Bible to answer my questions that I'm currently wrestling with today. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible does not have answers to those things, but it just means that we approach the text in a way that oftentimes is full of, it can be full of arrogance. A better way is to say, let's approach the text humbly, Let's approach the text in a way that says, I don't necessarily have all the answers. I'm approaching an ancient document. I need to un- I'm reading someone else's mail. How do I read this? How do I understand this in the context of the way the first century would have understood this? And then begin to digest it. Think about it. Then after you do some of the hard work, then you can begin to ask the question, about, well, how does this apply to me today? How do I begin to wrestle with the realities or the truths or the universal concepts that, that are part of this text into my world 2018? Hopefully that makes sense. So with that being said, let's, let's talk a little bit about this last sentence right here. Any act of communication only has meaning within a particular language and historical cultural context. Let's, let's think about this. Because um, let's say, for example, you were to walk into another culture. Say you walked into France or you know, Mexico. And as an American, you have all these idioms and ideas and concepts and thoughts. And you can either, either go in there and impose your Americanness on them or you can go in there as a humble observer and say, how do I acclimate to society and ideas and concepts and dinner manners and all this other type of stuff? You, you go in there with a different posture. So let's take a look at some cultural ways and ideas that we talk about. So next slide. So if I were to like, come to you and say, I am your father. What does that mean? What does that mean? Right? So again, obviously I like Star Wars. But um, that obviously, that is a Star Wars quote. But let's say, for example, you go forth 100 years from now into Vietnam, or, I don't know, Canada, or you know, South America, or somewhere. It doesn't matter. Or maybe by then we'll be on Mars. Let's just say you go to Mars. All right. And you go there, and you're like, with your friends, and you're like, I am your father. Like the, the, the reality is that most people have no clue what you're talking about. It's culturally contextualized. That phrase, you got it. In other words, for you to understand, if you have no idea what I am your father means, first of all, it requires for you to have a conversation. It requires for that person that understands what I am your father means to begin to say, oh, well, actually, that has to do with a movie. And the movie involves, you know, this guy named Darth Vader. And, you know, so sorry if I just spoiler alerted. You're the whole, you know, I ruined your world. Yes, Darth Vader happens to be the father of somebody. I'll just leave it at that. Um, Next one, let's say this. 
When you are a man, sometimes you wear stretchy pants in your room. Where's that from? Yeah, there you go. Good job. Isn't that a great movie? It's amazing, huh? Some of you are like, no. My wife doesn't like those types of movies anyways, by the way. So um, it's a great movie. My wife and I have different tastes in movies, which is a good thing, a really good thing. She's way more cultured than I am. Um, here's another one. He's an angry elf. All right? Where's that from? Of course, yeah. Um, again, these, and then if I were to say LOL, all right, obviously we all know what that means, or ROFL. Uh, again, go into another culture, maybe a culture that's not technologically advanced, and you're like, LOL. And they're like, LOL, lol? What does that, what does that mean? What does lol mean? It, it, that phrase has a meaning to it. And that meaning has to be explained to those that don't understand it. And what I'm suggesting to us all is that that's the same thing with the Bible. We're entering into a strange world, a world that's very foreign to us, a world that has words and languages and ideas and idioms and concepts that are attached to phrases and words that for the most part you and I aren't familiar with. So all I'm trying to get us to think about is to adopt a posture of humility when we approach this incredibly God-breathed text. I think it does honor to the text. So with that being said, let's begin to jump in and take a look at some other bigger, fuller, broader ideas. So first of all, which kind of leads me to the next thing, is that we have to actually address the elephant in creation. You're like, wait, what? How do we do that? So let me talk a little bit about the elephant in creation, was what I mean by that. So I need to address the fact that for the most part, in Christian circles today, there is not this uniform way of understanding or thinking about even what Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are all about. So this kind of leads to something that you just have to think about. And again, uh, you know, I'm typically the type of guy where it's just like it's better just to put all the cards on a table, just identify them for what they are so you can at least, if anything, think about them and then begin to have some more information as to how to process them. So on the one hand, you have two different types of camps, the way I would kind of describe it. On the one hand, you have camps that would take a more literal approach, literal approach. And this would be a literal way of saying, well, we know that the Bible, uh, God literally created the world, some would say literally 6,000, 6,500 years ago, and literally 12 or uh, uh, six 24-hour periods, and this is a literal chronological orientation or layout of how God created things. Then on the other extreme, I should say on the other hand, even within the context of true biblical scholarship. Now, what I mean by that is I'm, I'm not talking about people that don't believe the scripture is God-breathed. I'm talking about people that actually believe scripture is God-breathed. They love the scripture. They value the scripture. They honor the scripture. They recognize it as God's holy, sacred, informative, uh, descriptive word of himself and of what earth and creation and all that is all about, is they would take what I would describe as probably more of a literary approach, meaning that you interpret a passage based upon its literary style, which then requires you to ask the question, what type of literary style is this particular genre of writing? So Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it raises the question, is it to be taken literally? Is it more something to be taken literarily? Uh, is, is, is the main, is the big E on the eye chart? Another way to think of this are the big questions that the writer of Genesis is trying to tackle and answer is to describe, to spell out a literal chronological sequence of how the earth was created. That becomes a big question. Or some would suggest, is that imposing modern-day, 21st-century questions upon this ancient document. 
So all I'm simply trying to do is just give you information. I'm not going to answer this for you today because I can go on and on and on, uh, and this could be a very lengthy thing. And, and, and honestly, in, in my true honest opinion, I think to spend too much time in this actually could end up leading us to miss the big E on the eye chart, to become uh, a process in which we actually miss the main point of what the introductory chapters of this entire book are all about and what I'm trying to describe. So what I want to do is I want to at least give you guys some uh, things to think about, a resource and exhaust yourself, uh, your own resources to looking at. So you can go to Answers in Genesis, which is the, the traditional, or traditional, I would say, maybe within the past 150 or so years, maybe even before that, a more literal approach to how these things kind of play out. Uh, there's some more other ideas which literary approach. Um, Biologus.org, Tim Mackey, he's the guy that does the Bible videos that we've been talking about. He actually has a really great teaching series. It's a lecture series called Science and Faith Lecture, so just check out. That's a great, he's got all sorts of notes available on there, footnotes. I mean, if you're kind of uh, like a literary type, geek type person like me, um, you love, you love, I love footnotes. I have a fondness in my heart for footnotes. Right. So, and then on the bottom, you can see some other things like academic. These are uh, more academic, more if you want to get deeper into some of these things, you get the idea. More popular so on. So Gordon Fee happens to be one of my favorite scholars and theologians. He has this incredible book on how to read the Bible for all it's worth. It's a great book to just kind of whet your appetite if you want to dig deeper into this question of origins, right? But I'm not going to do that because I want to get on to pointing out what I think the main narrative, idea, concept that's being put forth. I mean, in other words, let's put it this way. If you were a Jewish person living around 3,000 years ago, and you picked up this, this document, this book, that was written, believed by Moses, what would be the astounding realities that you would glean from this thing? That's, that's the question I'm asking. So if, you, if, you could, if we can somehow transport ourselves back 3,000, 3,500 years into an entirely different worldview, entirely different culture, entirely a different uh, mindset. Um, what would be the key concepts that would be catastrophically beautiful to us as we would just scan the text and read through it? That's what I want us to think about. And really, I have two points that I just want to make, and then I'm, I'm done. We will then finish. The first thing that I want to take a look at is number one. I'll just kind of give you the two things. Number one is we will take a look at creation as God's temple. There's something that's happening in this t passage that kind of sets in a trajectory for the rest of the Bible. So creation as God's temple. The second thing we'll take a look at is humans as God's image bearers in that temple. Humans as God's image bearers in that temple. So let's jump in. Creation as God's temple, number one. Let's begin to look at the text, Genesis chapter one, verses one through two. Let me read that, and I'll make a few comments, and then uh, we'll just kind of move on and make our way through this. Uh, just, I'm not gonna read through the entire uh, uh, first two chapters. You're more than welcome to read that. I, I just want to focus on some of these key elements and key areas. Again, remember, we are flying 30,000 feet above. Um, I have other teachings in which I've unpacked this more fully. Again, if you want more information, there's all these other great resources that are available on here. So I'm not trying to dodge big key questions that may be huge in your mind. Um, I'm, I'm just trying to stay focused on certain things that we have within a limited time frame. So hopefully that makes sense. So let me read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. You can read along if you want to follow. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Some translations kind of put a little bit of variant there. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, when God created the heavens and earth, there's a little bit of a distinction or a nuance there. It goes on to say, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. 
and the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. So three things to think about in terms of phrases. Next slide. Uh, again, all this just kind of comes from some of Tim Mackey's um, notes that he's got in there. Just kind of cut and paste it in here. Uh, number one is the phrase, in the beginning. In the beginning. The Hebrew word for there is Bereshit. Uh, this, is, this is kind of an early period of time of undetermined duration. So if you, one of the ways in which Bible interpreters um, and translators try to understand particular words is they don't just read one particular passage. They actually read every other passage where this particular word is used to get a better understanding as to how this word should be used within its context. So the word Bereshit could also involve just, a, a, some had described it as like way back when. And whenever you're taking an ancient language and you're trying to put it into a modern-day context or a modern-day phrase or modern-day word, there's oftentimes not a direct word-for-word or one-for-one equivalent. Does that make sense? So Bereshit, how do, you, how do you say this ancient Hebrew word into modern language? This is why some of your translations vary on this. So if you've ever come across different translations, you're like, well, wait a minute, one translation says this, one translation says this, one translation says this. Are there contradictions? Typically, the answer is no, no, not at all. It's just that what you're discovering is that you have a Hebrew word or Greek word that uh, does not have a, an equivalence of the English language or Spanish or whatever language that you're reading it in. So that's why you'll find a variance of words that are oftentimes there. So this particular word could also be translated, a phrase be translated as way back when. Um, some would point out that this is not so much God putting a date onto when all things were created, but he's basically saying way back when, when this whole thing began, or in the beginning, you know, we say stuff like that. So the other, another, word, another word that comes up is the word create, bara. Um, this is... Not so much in this, the idea of creating something out of nothing. Oftentimes we import certain Greek ideas and ideologies that all things. Now, did God create all things? Of course. Yes, he says. How did he create it? Like out, out of nothing. We know that for sure. But the word that's being used here, bara, is the word for maybe like formation. It's assigning function, order, purpose to the elements of the world. Not necessarily bringing into material existence. So in other words, what God was doing in the beginning, he was forming habitable space. For something. That's what we end up learning in just a few passages later. For whom God was creating this habitable space. For his chiefest of creation. We'll get to that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Secondly, or thirdly, I should say, is the word heavens and the earth, or the phrase heavens and the earth. Now, when we think of the word heaven, what do you think of? If I were to say heaven, what would you think about? Sky? Okay, what else? Stars? Anything else? Dwelling place of God. Did you see what we just did? We've got, we've got not, not necessarily disagreement. We have variety, don't we? So the question then is, when you're approaching this ancient text, is to ask the question, how would the ancients would have understood this? It was written to them. How would they have understood this word, heavens? That's basically used there. Did they, let me ask you this, um, when, let's, let's go to the, even the word earth or land, because some might say in the heavens and the earth. Um, when we think of the word earth, what do you think of when I say the word earth? What comes to your mind? Dirt, what else? Planet, what else? That's actually what I'm looking for, planet. So we typically think of planet. All right, so there we go. I'll just, I'll just tell you where I'm going. So we typically think of planet. So in other words, if you think of this blue orb hanging in you know, black space, that's how we think of it. But do you see what we just did? We just imposed a modern-day concept on an ancient text. So the question is, is this how the, the readers of Genesis 1 would have understood this? When they read the word earth, would they have envisioned a blue 
you know, orb hanging in black space? Probably not. Probably not. What would they have thought of? Well, where the word earth actually can also mean dirt. So you got it right. Soil. It's dirt. In the beginning, God manufactured, God created, God organized the heavens. The word that's actually used there is to basically describe the, the firmament. Again, if you look at this in the English translations, you'll find a variety of words that are actually used there. Again, it's not because there's contradictions. It's because this word is a little bit tricky to translate into our English language. So you might have a variety. Some might say the firmament. Some might, what, any other translations that you guys have? Sky? What else? No? Nothing? Okay. All right. I'll keep going on. Um, thanks for the help. But um, anyways, oh, I'm just kidding. Totally kidding. Um, but the idea is of earth and sky. We've got to think about this in the context of how would a first century person or, or a person to whom this was being received, how would they think about these things? So in their mind, they're not necessarily thinking, in the beginning, God created this orb. They're thinking, in the beginning, God formed and fashioned this, this habitable space for humanity to dwell, to do something on. So again, I'm, I'm just, all I'm simply saying is that there is a wide variety of ways to approach this and think about this. I'm just trying to help broaden our understanding to realize that there's something more that's happening here in the text and oftentimes that we, we, we tend to look at. All right. Next slide, I want to go on and just take a look at the seven days of creation, or the six days of creation and the seventh day of God's rest. Next slide. It kind of breaks down. And most, all scholars will recognize the way that this is actually written is, 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 is in this amazing literary poetic type, type of fashion. Uh, there's certain words that are actually used here. It's kind of like a word picture, the way the original author is writing this. It's actually phenomenal when you think about this, that these ancients had such an incredible ability to write that God used, God breathed his holy sacred word through these guys, and it's full of poetry and beauty and symmetry. And that's what, you, that's what I want you to see here is the symmetry. So th take a look at this. Um, first, we're told that God creates time. So let me read this, verses 3 through 5. So then, then God said, let there be light. So immediately we think, what do we think about when we read the word light? Photons? Rays? Right? Light? I mean, I, I'm honestly, I'm, I've actually heard some teachers say, well, this is God saying. This is when he created photons. And, and that's, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily saying that that's 100% wrong. I'm just saying, I don't, I'm almost positive that's not how the ancients would have understood this. Um, in fact, God actually tells us what light means here in the passage. L listen to what he goes on to say. And then God said, let them, let there be light, and, let, and then there was light. And then God said that the light was good. So he makes his declaration over light, whatever that is, whatever light is now. He says it's good, it's really good. He doesn't say it's really good, he just says it's good. So I don't want to add, all right? It's not good, don't add to God's word. Um, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light. So did God create something, or did God designate something. He designated something. God created by way of designation. He's saying, look, this light is day. Why? Now, let me ask you this. Uh, 3,500 years ago, here you are living in wilderness territory. This is desert. And you live on the land. You live off of the land. It's an agrarian culture and it's a shepherding culture, meaning you milk and raise goats or cows or cattle or livestock or whatever. And you also maybe have some people, part of your tribe, that also, uh, you know, they make vineyards and they, you know, do what they do with the ground. Um, would day be important to you? Of course. What do you do during the day? You work. You till the ground. You, you, you milk 
little goat, Geppetto, back there. And you, you do all those things. Like, you do all these things because day is important. Day is when work gets done. And so God's saying, I, I organized day. So listen to how this works out. So there's this cosmic domain of what we would call day and night. And then to the opposite of that, we see God then kind of giving these, uh, these parallels to that are the luminaries, which would be probably the stars, the firmament, what you see up in the sky at night. And then he goes on to describe day two, that God creates his dome or the ceiling or the sky and the seas, separates them. And then he goes on to say in day five are the inhabitants. And within the inhabitants that he creates are the fish of the seas and the birds of the air to fill these domains in which God created. So all I'm trying to simply just point out is there is a rhythm, there's a symmetry, there's an artistic uh, element to all of this that's happening. Now, again, some of us, we, we, we might, I, took, I never noticed this, obviously, in just a typical reading of the text. Um, but again, these are things that are there in text that, for the most part, a lot of times we just don't pick up on because it's a foreign culture to us. It's foreign language, and it's been translated. And this is why it's helpful to understand sometimes some of the original languages, which I really don't. I just have good Bible software. And the idea of just kind of digging a little bit deeper. So again, you see day three, God creates the dry land and the vegetation. And then day six, kind of in complement to that, he says he creates the land animals. And then thus the humans. Day seven, God rests. Now there's a really fascinating thing. And I kind of mentioned earlier, I kind of already kind of uh, gave you the idea that creation is as God's temple. Now in the ancient culture, for example, when Solomon created the temple or when built out the temple or even the tabernacle, there was a seven-day feast period. In fact, Solomon's temple construction was so big, so grand, he has seven days of feasting and celebration, and it's so amazing, he says, let's do seven more. Kind of like double that. Let's, so the number seven was a very significant number for them. But again, there's a lot more scholarly ideas in which you can dig into deeper of this. But the reality is that this was written to a group of people that were living in a culture, for example, of Mesopotamians, Canaanites, Egyptians. Many, many believe that this was kind of written, obviously, during a time frame when the children of Israel were either in exile or prior to that. But the point of the matter is, is that as they're reading this, they're understanding some of these ideas of how God created all things into being. There's a lot of these things that are kind of playing into this. So with that being said, I just want to jump in to some other concepts. So for example, Isaiah chapter 66 verse 1 says this, the Lord says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord. So what I want to kind of throw out to you is something to consider and think about, that God creates this space we know as, you know, the planet or earth or the cosmos, and he says, this is where I want my glory to reside. So creating a temple, a lot of ancient scholars have recognized or believed that even the Garden of Eden was sort of this temple that God was creating in the temple. God's presence interacted with human beings in this profound way. But we also know the rest of the story because human beings did not stay in that realm of being in God's presence. They were banished because of their choice of sin. And then you begin the story. And again, it just kind of begins to sort of telescope outwards. Then you begin to see the story of Israel. And it's interesting because you see these a little bit of these parallels. For example, you see the garden kind of being paralleled by way of the temple. And you see the children of Israel living in this paradise, or I should say uh, Adam and Eve living in this paradise in the garden. The children of Israel living in this paradise we call the land of milk and honey. Uh, the 
Adam and Eve being kicked out of God's presence or exiled from God's presence. You see Israel sinning, making a choice, and being kicked out of the land of Israel, being set out into exile. And then you see Jesus come on the scene. And Jesus sees himself as fulfilling the story of Israel. But not only that, also fulfilling the story of Adam himself. Because even Paul himself says Jesus is the latter Adam, the last Adam, the one who is creating a brand new creation according to himself. So all that being said, I just want for us to think about, first and foremost, the idea of all creation. Number one, that God created all, that he had his, direct, his hands directly in the dirt, so to speak, forming, fashioning, creating something of which he is the king over all these things. It's not Marduk or Baal or some other false god or false entity or false deity of the pagan gods of the land, but Yahweh himself, the one, the creator God. And the way that he's doing this is not by battle, not by attacking, not by violence, but by creating, by speaking. God speaks and things become. So that's how I think the ancients would have saw this creation account. Second thing I want to wrap it up with this is that humans are God's Image bearers. So the last thing I want to look at. Humans are God's image bearers. So I'm going to read a handful of passages. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 28. Let's read these and then make a few notes on these. So number 1, verse 26 says this. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this kind of raises the question, what in the world does it mean to bear the image of God? Um, and this becomes a really important centralized theme throughout the entire Bible. So what does it mean? Uh, among other things, it means that mankind has incredible dignity and value. So in ancient worlds, um, in pagan societies, pagan cultures, they would create a temple. And in that temple, they would put an image inside that temple. And that image was typically reflective of a particular god. In Yahweh's story, God says, all of creation is my temple. And I'm going to put an image in there. And that image will reflect me. But that image is not dead. It's animated. How? Because he breathed life into it to make choices, to honor, to reflect, to say yes to God, to do what God calls us to do. And this is where God says, and mankind is to, as he describes, he's to exercise dominion over all these things. And to work the land, he says, to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the heavens and over livestock uh, and over every creeping thing that's on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. So there's something about the unique distinctiveness of the sexes, binaries, male, female. Now, these are the two ways in which God described. Now, again, I realize in our culture, there are all forms of uh, ways in which that has been confused in the modern world. And oftentimes, the point of the matter is the storyline oftentimes takes us off track from the original account. In the original creation, God says, this is my good creation, how I created maleness, femaleness. There's, there's one humanity, one human being, one human species that is recognized in maleness and in femaleness, bearing God's image, reflecting back something of the likeness and the image of who God is. Some have described the idea of, of image bearing as taking up the vocation of God, um, I don't know how we oftentimes think about the idea of image bearing. In fact, I'll watch a video. I'll let, you, I'll let the video do a better job at explaining this, and I'll just kind of keep, keep to this, and we'll keep going through this. So verse 28 goes on to say, and then God blessed him 
And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all the fish of the seas and over all the birds of the air and the heavens and over every living creature and thing that moves upon the earth. And then uh, jump ahead real quick to Genesis chapter 2. We'll pick up in that little area right there. Let me see. Do I have it? Do I have it up here? Yes, we do have it up there. Great. So Genesis 2.15, it says this. And the Lord God took man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is really fascinating. The two words that are used there, to work it and to keep it, those two verbs, are actually used, or recycled, if you want to think of it that way, uh, later on in the, New Te- in the Old Testament to describe the very actions that the priests were to do and perform. Where? In the temple. Coincidence? Or is the author suggesting something? I-, I would suggest that the author knows exactly what he's doing, and he's playing on a picture that began in the book of Genesis, that God created all creation, good, really good, so good, and puts man in the middle of this creation to continue to give energy and exercise ability and mindset over these things, to cultivate. What does that mean? It means that when we cultivate something or exercise power over something, uh, what we're basically doing is we're harnessing whatever its potential is, and we're maximizing it. So, for example, if you were to go outside, like this might be around the time of year, I think, when you do that, you might play around in the soil, not for the sake of just getting dirty, but for the sake of planting something. So you are tilling the soil, and you're getting your hands dirty, and you're, then you're putting, I don't know, nutrients or whatever it is that you put into the soil. You're, get, you're creating, you're cultivating, you're stirring it up, but for the aim, for the specific purpose of something coming to life out of that soil. That is exercising dominion over the soil in your front or backyard for the purpose of life. This is exactly what God was up to. So the idea of these verbs to work and to keep it, these same verbs that, uh, and I think that what the author's suggesting is that humanity is so filled with dignity that he's like, he's an image bearer of God, of Yahweh, the king over all things, that mankind bears the image of God in this garden that God created, but he's also a priest to reflect the kindness and the goodness and severity and the reality of who God is in this, in this world. In fact, let me go through a couple of these things. In the book of Exodus, I'll read through these really quickly and wrap it up. Exodus 19, it says this. God says, uh, you yourselves have seen what I did to, Egypt, to the Egyptians, how that I bore you up on eagles' wings. He's talking to the Israelite people. And then I brought you to myself. And now, therefore, uh, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You will be a treasured possession to me among all the peoples. And God goes on to say, and... Uh, you will be a kingdom of priests to me. God says this to his people of Israel. You will be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom, a nation, a priest before me. Uh, skip on down to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. God says this later on, several hundred years later. He says, but you shall be called a priest to the Lord. Again, using this language that Israel, you guys will be my priest. Skip on down in the New Testament, the book of 1 Peter. Same language is used. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we get this image, this picture, even in the New Testament, that what God is up to in this world is he's, he's not getting rid of the priesthood. He's calling a whole bunch of people that normally would have been alienated from the priesthood into this thing. Gentiles, people that were once far from God, now become these image bearers that reflect who God is. Finally, the book of Revelation says this, to him who loves us, and has uh, freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. So let me 
finish with this thought. Here's the story so far. Wrap it up with this. I have the worship team come on up right now as I'm done. So in summary, two things to just take away from this. Number one, Yahweh is the unrivaled king over all and that he forms and fashions a good habitable creation, kind of like a gift that keeps on giving. I mean, think about it. That's what planet Earth is, isn't it? It's a gift from Yahweh that keeps on giving. When you cultivate it well, take good care of it, it keeps on giving. And then secondly, Yahweh created human beings in his image and likeness to rule over Earth. Think of this as vice regents. That our, our role is to not somehow assume that earth is, is ours, as if we earned it, we deserved it. It's God saying, this is my earth. I created it out of my goodness to give to you to do something, to participate in it. But that's not the end of the story. Because we know if that was the end of the story, everything would be amazing, and it's not. Our world is broken. Our relationships are fragile. It's not broken. Our life is riddled with pain and hurt. Just watch the news. You're going to see how far and wide and vast broken wickedness and evil reside within this planet, within this world, within your own heart. And that's where we've got to keep reading on. Because Genesis chapter 3 begins to tell us what happened in this world. How come things have become so broken and dysfunctional in this world? And what God is up to in this world to do something with it. But, um, in fact, I'm not going to show the video, sorry. You guys can watch it online. Just go to thebibleproject.com, whatever it is, and uh, the image of God. We're kind of a little bit out of time. So what I want to do is I want to make sure that we don't miss the opportunity to respond to God. Because at the end of the day, here's what I want to leave you with this, this big thought. A myth, in its traditional language or word, is a story by which we derive meaning from. Every culture has a myth. Doesn't mean that a myth is 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 not true. The Bible is a myth, not, not in an uh, not true. It's a story. It's a story. The way C.S. Lewis would describe it. It's a myth. It's a story. It's a story that gives and infuses meaning. When you listen, I believe it's one hundred percent. All of it is true. But it's a story, which tells you about this world and about who you are and about why there's brokenness and about what God is up to in this world to bring resolve to the tension and destruction and the evil in this world. It's a story. Do you realize all culture and society, we live our lives to somehow find some form of definition to describe why we think the way that we think, why we act the way that we think, how we can find some sort of liberation for our own brokenness and sinfulness so that we can live free. Every society has myths, stories in which they live by. America has myths by which we live by. Today, part of, you know, I think Super Bowl is, is, is part of the narrative that says we're powerful, we're strong. We have, we have a lot of free time, we have a lot of abilities. So we're going to celebrate an entire several hours of just entering into the fact that we've got this incredible power to just express all of this. But at the end of the day, every myth, other than the, myth, other than the story of God, the reality of God, the gospel will lead us to a place of brokenness. Because at some point, every story has an expiration date. And when that story breaks or fails you, you'll break with it. But the story of God is one that is also inviting you to trust it, to believe who God is, to believe what God is up to in this world, that God sends his son into this world to engage, to deal with the brokenness, 
in a way that we can't even comprehend, to bear the image of God, to do for us, for Israel, for humanity, what, we, what we've all failed to do collectively and individually, and to give us new hope. So, as an invitation, I invite you to do business with God, to think about what are the areas in your life right now that maybe God is calling you to doubt or disbelieve false narratives, false stories that you've trusted, and to believe the story of God, the gospel. So, let's respond. Why don't we all stand? We'll sing. We will partake of communion as a way of remembering Jesus' life, suffering, death, and ultimately his resurrection for us. Uh, we'll sing. And if you're here and you need prayer for anything, uh, we have rugs in the front for you to just kind of come up before God and do business with God. Um, we'll have some people up front that would love to pray with you. I'll be up front. would love to pray with you. So, um, let me pray briefly, and then let's respond to God. So God, thank you for your presence here right now. And if there are people here that find themselves just needing hope, needing Jesus, God, meet them right where they're at. Uh, God, help us to respond to you in a way that's proportional to the revelation of who you are and of your greatness. God, that we would be people that would enthusiastically, lovingly devote our energies over to you. So let's respond. Light after darkness, gain after loss, strength after weakness, crown after cross, sweet after bitter, hope after fears, home after wondering, praise after tears. After sowing, sun after rain, sight after mystery, and peace after pain, and joy after sorrow, a calm after blast, rest after weariness, sweet rest at last.
Gain after love.